Good morning to all of you. Today's Yud Shvat. I'm going to tell you some stories that surround the events of Yud Shvat. Hopefully I'll be able to cover a, a significant portion of the, the episode, of the whole event. The Friedrich Rebbe was a very, very sick man physically, extremely ill. As early as 1933, he showed signs of, um, of MS, of multiple sclerosis, and he debilitated. He got weaker and weaker. He um, eventually lost his ability to walk and even almost to talk. The Fidikeba speech was almost impossible to comprehend. There were doctors who claimed that it was impossible to explain how he lived for almost two decades of his life. Biologically, how his Neshama and Guf stayed together was a miracle. When the Rebbe came to the United States in 1940, he could not walk by himself. He had to be literally held up. My grandfather, who lived in Bilal, my mother's father, who was not a Lubavitcher, met the Friedrich Rebbe in the Greystone Hotel in 1940. He didn't understand a word. In other words, his speech was so impaired, was so difficult already then. On top of that, in 1945, the Friedrich Rebbe had a stroke, which set him back even further. He stopped writing and saying Hasidus at that point. But remarkably, he continued to function as a Rebbe. He continued to lead Lubavitch. The man could barely move, but the mind was sharp like that of a young man. The creative skill and the warmth and the, the, the life of the Fidiq Rebbe, the passion, the, the joy, the energy of the Fidiq Rebbe didn't subside at all. It's a remarkable thing. It's mummish a remarkable thing. You read his sikhs, you read his writings, you, you cannot imagine that a human being who had so many reasons to complain could write this way. I heard from somebody that the previous Rebbe would have fabrengens on occasion. And um, there was a whole set of rules about who was allowed in, who was not allowed in. And a lot of people were not allowed in. They stood on the steps. Leading up to the second floor of 770, which was the previous Rebbe's apartment, where we had a dining room, it was a larger dining room, but it was after all a dining room, that when the Hasidim would leave a Fabrengen, and the door would close, as soon as the Hasidim would leave the room, the Friedrich Rebbe would start to hyperventilate. He couldn't catch his breath. And his daughters would stand on either side of him and fan him. In other words, he was so frail, physically, that the stress of being in a room full of people exhausted him. But when, as long as the people were present, he acted like he was fine, everything was normal. His face shone like the sun. My grandfather's on the snagged. And he says to me, I've never seen this in my life. I walked into the field, his face shone. He, he, he radiated like the sun. He had a light coming from his face. Mamish. But he was physically exhausted. Mamish exhausted. And he continued to lead Lubavitch. The war, the year wars, and the years before the war, and the years after the war, the Rebbe's youthfulness and creativity and vision were unbelievable. Were, were, remarkable is an understatement. The Friedrich Rebbe once said of himself, the Friedrich said about himself, imagine being 60 years old, broken in body and in spirit, having to start your life over again like a little child. That's how the Rebbe felt when he came to the United States, and he did it. The, the Rebbe came to America and didn't retire. He went to work to make America into a Mokhamtaida with no resources and almost no people. But he was a, an amazing visionary, and he was equally an amazing 
pragmatist. Friedrich Hebel was both a dreamer and a very practical man. Those two characteristics were woven into him in a godly way, in an infinite way. He was such an idealist. He so much believed in goodness, it was a sickness. And he was so capable of making things happen. He was such a practical person. It's unbelievable. And these two characteristics made him a Rebbe. Not a tzaddik, not a businessman, a Rebbe. Um, and until the moment of his histalkus, that vitality, that youthfulness, that creative strength never waned. It didn't subside for a moment. As a result, as ill as he was physically, his passing, his histalkus was a surprise. Here was a man, nobody knew what keeps his soul and his body together, who's not just alive, he's on fire. And every person around him was touched and moved by that enthusiasm, by that fire, by that bread, by that power. The winter of that year, the winter of his histalkus, of the year of 1949-1950, a number of things occurred which should have been telltale signs that the Rebbe knew something was going to happen, but, you know, as Hasidim should be expected, could be expected of Hasidim, nobody noticed those signs. First of all, there was a tradition in those years, and it continues to this day, to give the Rebbe what's called a pan kloli, a pidyan nefesh, before Rosh Hashanah we all give the Rebbe our name and our mother names for a blessing. But who does the Rebbe give the pidyan nefesh to? So the Hasidim gave what's called a pan kloli, a general pidyan, with all the Hasidim together, and for reasons that are beyond me, only married people were allowed to sign, in other words, couples, families, would sign on this pidyan nefesh, where they're asking the Rebbe to daven on behalf of himself. A pidyan nefesh for the Rebbe. And in 1949, Tafshin Yud, when they handed the Rebbe the pidyan, the Rebbe said, This year is a year that the individual must be included with the group. Cryptic words. But in hindsight, they were interesting. The idea that a person should never be judged alone, but should be part of a group. Simchas that year was a very happy Simchas by the Fiyudik Rebbe. And also, he behaved in a totally uncharacteristic way. He was very, he spoke to a lot of individual people. He gave unbelievable brachas. He was just in a very, very great mood. And it was a very special Simchas Nobody could have understood that this optimism was actually a sign of an end. Sometime during the course of the winter, he said to one of his daughters, Time to give over the public service to somebody else. So he said, What did that mean? It's time to retire. Now you can translate that many different ways, but this is what he said. Also during the course of that winter, the Rebbe said by Fabrengen, he once walked into the previous Rebbe, and the previous Rebbe was very thoughtful. And when he saw the Rebbe, he picked up his head and he said, I'm thinking to move to Israel. So the Rebbe said to the Fiyadiki Rebbe, but there's so much work to be done in America. We've just started. We have so much to do. We have to change the world. So the Fiyadiki Rebbe said, Ah, a fine machshava. Ah, it was a good thought. In other words, I, I, I'm not going there, but I thought about it. And then the Rebbe said by the Fabrengen, when he told over the story, in in his fantasy, in his thought, he was already in Israel. And there is indication to the effect that a number of Lubavitcher Rebbe's shortly before their passing, spoke or even made plans to move to Eretz Yisrael. On Yud Shvat, the Rebbe had Yorzeit for, I forgot one very interesting thing, which is really amazing. The Friedrich Rebbe continued writing. 
as limited as he was physically, he continued to write. Ed of Shabbos, the Friday before he passed away, he wrote letters and signed letters and so forth. And he had a signature. Everybody had a signature. Exactly one year before, Yutzvah Tov Shintes, he made a very obvious change in his signature. The Rebbe would sign his name, Yosef Yitzchak. That's how he signed his name. The Yitzchak, the word Yitzchak, the Yud was a dot, a point. He'd make a little point, and he would go into a big tzaddik, and a chuf, Beginning Yitzchak, the year before his passing, the Yud of Yitzchak, he started to write it like a printed Yud, a square Yud. And eventually, he didn't only make a square, like a sefer tater type Yud, he would actually color it in, a, a solid Yud. And somebody wrote a letter to the Rebbe, to our Rebbe, saying to the Rebbe, how come there was a shinu change in the Rebbe's signature? And the Rebbe said, I didn't hear, I don't know. <laughs> and in hindsight, it was, it was really amazing. You could see it, they printed it in the Igyas, in the Friedrich Rebbe, in, in the introduction to Chaylik Yud, you see how the Rebbe's signature evolved. That Mamash, around the time of Yutrat, he changed his chasim, he changed his signature. One year exactly before. Yutrat, the Rebbe had yotet for his grandmother. For his mother, so the Rebbe gave out a Maimir for that occasion. The Maimir had two parts. The Maimir, of course, is called Basi Lagani. The first five chapters were for his mother, grandmother's yard side. The second five chapters were for his mother's yard side. And there was an intent to give out ten more chapters, five more for the subsequent Purim, and five more for his father's yard site, which would be on Bayes Nissen, the second of this. In other words, this was a mimer basically relegated to the yard site of the previous Rebbe's closest people, his father and his mother and his grandmother, who was probably the second most important influence in his life after his father was his grandmother, Rebbe Tanifka. She wasn't like she raised him, she pushed it, raised him. She was a very special woman. And um, so he had yard site. The previous Rebbe did not have more dominion. He couldn't. He was so frail. Every type, time he would meet people, it, it took energy, physical exertion. It would exhaust him. Yechidus was very tiring. Yechidus continued. People went into the Fidikeva, but it was exhausting for him. It was such a mysterious nefesh to see people, you can't imagine. And the, the work of Lubavitch, he was raising the money. The Fidikeva used to raise to cover the whole budget of Lubavitch. And he was involved in the nitty-gritty, all of the plannings, everything that was published from Lubavitch, every move and every step that was made by the Rebbe, his son-in-law, or his other son-in-law who ran the yeshiva, the Rebbe was hands-on in all of the issues of Lubavitch, and he was such a frail man, he was such a weak person. It's mamish not normal, it's impossible to explain. It's absolutely impossible to explain. The Rebbe didn't have more minion. But on special occasions, they would invite ten people who would go upstairs to his apartment, They'd make a minion in the hallway, and the Rebbe would sit in his room, and he could hear the davening, he could hear the laning, and so forth. So somebody asked, one of his daughters asked the Fiyadik Rebbe, is there going to be a minion Shabbos for your side, for your grandmother, for your mother? And he answered in Yiddish, and if you only knew Yiddish, this would resonate, Mevet Arufkein. Mevet Arufkein means Meh will go up. But Meh in Yiddish, can mean different things. It could mean other people. And it could also be oneself. So when she asked her father, Are you gonna, is it going to be a minion? His answer was, people are going to come from downstairs to upstairs. Or so she, so she thought. As it turned out, Mevet Arufke meant, I will ascend. There was no minion, Shabbos, by the Friday night, the Maimed Basil Lagani was brought to 770. 
And there was a small typographical error. The word Shlita, Shin, Lamed, Yud, Tes, Aleph, was missing the Yud. So Yechiel, the Yom, and Maruchim, the Yud was, was omitted. It was a typo, typographical error. The next morning, it was discovered that it was very, very far from a typo. The Fidikeb had a nurse. Her name was Manya. She pushed, she nursed him, she took care of him. She came with the Fidikeb from Europe yet, and to be quite blunt about it, the Fidikeb saved her life, pushed it. And um, she basically was in the house all the time. She pushed it, took care of the Fidikeb. At 7.15 in the morning, the Rebbe was sitting on his bed, and he said to his nurse, take me into my office. So she took him into the office, she put him in his chair, in a wheelchair, she wheeled him into the office. The Rebbe sat by his desk, and he looked around the room. He looked, he looked, and he was like nodding, as if he was greeting people. He was nodding and nodding. But 15 minutes, it's a long time to look at books. He was looking around at everything in the whole room. Fidikeb's office was wall-to-wall spot all around. He's nodding, and he's nodding, and he's nodding. But 15 minutes. And then he says to the nurse, take me back to the bedroom. She puts him back in the wheelchair. She goes back to the bedroom. She sits down in the bed. And he collapsed. He fell back on the bed. I heard from somebody, I don't know if it's true, but I heard this from somebody, and I say I don't know if it's true because the person who told me the story had the tendency to imagine things. Um, but he was around in those days. He was certainly there. That when the Rebbe fell back on the bed, he pointed at the clock. We know the exact time of the clock. It's 10 minutes day. He pointed at the clock. And there's, there's something, if you read the Sikhs, that we, the Rebbe marked off their passing to the second. The Rebbe Marash actually stopped his clock. The Marash took a pencil, took a piece of a toothpick, he put it into his pocket watch, that when the hour handle would reach a certain place, it would stop. He gave himself 50 minutes, five zero minutes, he called each one of his children, told them goodbye, gave him a bracha, exactly when the hour handle hit that spot, it was in Stalik. I mean, godly, get to the second. Heavenly, mamish. We know the exact time of the Stalikas of each Rebbe, and there was an Indian in it. I mean, according to the Gemara, there's an Indian in it. I don't know if that's the reason, but this is what this guy told me. The Fidikev's yarmulke fell off his head, so they went to put the yarmulke back on his head, and they saw that he was wearing two yarmulkes. The Fidikev always wore two yarmulkes, and nobody knew it. That's amazing. He was such a public person. People were constantly looking at him, and there were a number of things which were so public, and he didn't want people to see them, and nobody saw. Another thing which is unbelievably amazing is that we know that the Fidikev had long payas, long locks. They were very neatly tucked under his yarmulke. It was discovered by his tahare after he passed away, and they were cleaning, preparing him for burial. Can you imagine a man, such a public figure? People, there are thousands of pictures of the Friedrich People stared at him day and night, and nobody saw that they were pious. And, and he's a man whose hands trembled. He was a sick person. He didn't want people to know. And it was so overt. I mean, you can't hide pious. They're right here, you know. It's really amazing. I'm sorry? I, when I when I spoke to him last, he told me that I shouldn't tell you. You particularly. <laughs> Am I supposed to know that? <laughs> what I will tell you is that the Rebbe did not have long pace. The Friedrich Rebbe had long pace. The Rebbe had long pace. I, I have a thought, but I have no basis for that. I have a, I have a, I have a reason why the Friedrich would have had long pace. The Rebbe would not have had long pace, but I can't substantiate it, so I won't tell you. You understand yourself, the mood. The, 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 they called the EMT. They, they came with a fire truck. They ran upstairs with an oxygen tank. And they, they worked very hard on the Fiyadikir Rebbe. He was so ill. He was such a frail person. His body afterwards, was ex- his legs were very swollen. And the doctor determined by that examination that he must have had an enormous amount of pain. 
at the time that the Nishama left the Guf. Around 8.35, the, the technicians, the uh, fire department came down from the elevator, and the Bochum all standing downstairs, and they say, knew what happened, what, what's going on, how is he? And, of course, how is this guy supposed to understand the significance of this question? He said, gone. And 770 turned into a mourner's house. It, the love that Hasidim had for the Fiyadik he was a father to them. And his loss was such a devastating blow. It was devastating to the people here. It was devastating to the people overseas, to the people in Israel and Europe. So many people had survived Hitler and Stalin. Dreamed about one thing. Getting to New York and setting their eyes on the Holy Rebbe. So many people dreamed about just being able to look at the Rebbe. Now the Rebbe was gone. That Shabbos, of course, was surreal. It was not really, nobody lived People became hysterical. They never went over to somebody and said to someone to relax. He should calm down. People were getting crazy. They never paced the whole way, whole day. Spent hours talking to the doctor. And from time to time, he would go upstairs and push to stare at the feeding of his body, which was covered with a sheet on the bed. Once the Shabbos, Beryl Rifkin came, or Rabbi Rifkin came. He had been by the Tahara of the feeding of his father, by the Rebbe Rashab. And he, there were a number of great Hasidic Rebbe's in New York. There was the Amshin of the Rebbe here. We're not afraid if I guess I was thinking even do two Hasidic Rebbe's over here, Ah, Mestamed the Kapishnitzer, who offered their services. They knew how you prepared a Rebbe Tzadik for burial, and the Rebbe preferred to trust his Chassid as opposed to those two Hasidic Rebbe's. The Amshinov Rebbe was a very special person. The Kapishnitzer Rebbe was a special person. But Bela Rifkin, who was all about Chassid, had been by the title of the Rebbe Nishma Satan, and he repeated what he remembered from that occasion, and this is how they did it. And they prepared the Fidi Kemba for burial. The Levi was called for 12 o'clock. People came in mass. It was freezing. That whole winter, that whole t- shvat was frigid. It was, you, you know, you would exhale and you're, it would freeze. It was so cold. Thousands of people came. And thousands more came after the funeral was over because Lubavitch makes no eulogy. So a funeral lasts 15 minutes. In the Velt, a funeral of a tzaddik like this would take a whole day, you know. And... So people came 15 minutes late, and how late? And it was over. Show was over. My grandfather told me that he was, he was the printer for the Rebbe. He, he printed. He prepared the Maimah. He prepared the Basilagani. He was standing at the foot of the stairs, and the Rebbe's running up and down, up and down, making preparations for the funeral for the Levaya. He sees my grandfather, and he says to him, "There was a histalkus. Physically passed away. You have to stop printing the Maimah. Stop typing, typesetting the Maimah." At the end of that week, he sees my grandfather again. He says, "No." We have to continue to print. We have to print more. Almost <laughs> a week later. So my Zaydi said to me that in his heart, he felt this was like an interruption and a renewal. It was such a natural thing for him, you know. End of one and the beginning of another, separated by a span of a few days. They went to the Levaya. There was a Yid, If you'll remind me one day, I'll be in the mood with nothing else to do. I'll tell you some stories about him. The Amshinavid Rebbe was a very, very holy man. Mamish, a holy man. The Fidikev had great respect for him. He came to 770 for the funeral. He knew the previous Rebbe from Matotsk. They, they lived together in the suburb of Varsha, of Warsaw, called Matotsk. So he knew him from Poland yet. He spent the war years in Shanghai, in China. And he came to New York, and he was, the Rebbe loved him, and he loved the Rebbe. It was a real, real deep and meaningful affection between these two holy men. He came to 770. He was old. He passed away in 1954, just four years after. There was too many people. There was too much going on. 
So someone suggested him, you know what, let's go straight to the cemetery. We'll go to the Beis HaChaim, we'll get there first. And you'll be right there. So they went to the cemetery, and they came to the, the cemetery. The cemetery used to be empty. I mean, as a child, my, my father used to go to the, oh yeah, we used to play catch. The cemetery was empty, it was a big, big field. But when the field was buried, there were two or three graves in the whole of Avchachalke. There was nobody there. Deb's mother was there, and that's it. And uh, Michal's Varkin, but that was it. There was nobody there. It was empty. And they dug a grave. Usually it's done by the cemetery, but I'm sure the Hasidim went and dug a grave themselves. Also, I forgot to mention, the custom was that they took the table that the Fili can be used. They broke it apart, and from the table they made his casket. From the table they made his casket. This was a tradition. And the Amshid of Rebbe came to the cemetery. And he was standing and waiting. And the, someone came to tell him that the Oren is coming, that the previous Rebbe is being carried from the entrance of the cemetery, they were carrying him. And he said, Oi, oi, Erkimt! They told him, Erkimt, in Yiddish, he's coming. Oi, oi, Erkimt! Oi, oi, he's coming! And he chalish, and he chalish, but he fainted on the spot. He passed out. The, the, the thought of the Estalks of the Fidik Rebbe at the Mazayi Nomen. In any case, they came back from the funeral, and the Rebbe went into his office, and of course, nobody knew what's going to happen. You know, what do you do? How do you react? The, the Mashpia, the famous Mashpia, Shmuel of Itten, all the Bacham looked to him for counsel, and um, they ran to him and said, what should we do? He says, I don't know, go to the Ramash, ask the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said, I, I, I forgot all these details, that nobody should come into 770 without first going to the Mikveh. He set up a sentry by the door of 770, do not let anybody in, tell them to go to the Mikveh, the Mikveh was open all day long, and the, the, uh, the Rebbe was telling people how to react to this kind of a situation. To make a long story short, the Rebbe went into his office, and he closed the door, but he left it open a little. He didn't close it all the way. He had torn his kapot, he had torn his shirt, we all did. When the Stalkas of the Nasi, everybody tears their kapot. What? Yeah, but the Levi was Sunday. No, what I said about the mikvah was Shabbos morning. But this all happened on Sunday, yeah. I went back a little. They had torn his kapot, and he would wear this torn jacket a whole week for seven days. He went into his office, and he sat down on a low, like on a milk box, on a low surface. And he wanted that people should see that he's sitting shiver. The halacha is, for a nasi b'yitzel, everybody sits shiver. You don't sit for a week, you sit for a half hour. The Rebbe was not a son, don't forget. The Rebbe was a son-in-law. So the people sitting shiver was the wife and the two daughters. The Rebbe wasn't sitting shiver, but the Rebbe was a mourner. And they set up a system. There were two minyanim each day. There were two son-in-laws, Rashag was the older son-in-law, the Rebbe was the younger son-in-law, and um, they, they davened, the Rashag davened with the first me, the Rebbe davened with the second me, this is how it was. And of course, Chassidim chose their favorite, those who wanted to go to Rashag went to Rashag, those who wanted to go to what was called then the Ramash, went to the Ramash. In the beginning, Rashag probably had the larger minion, the Ramash had the smaller minion, but it didn't take very long for the Minyanim to shrink and to expand, you understand, <laughs> the... Uh, the, the, the Rashag's meaning got smaller and the Rebbe's meaning got larger. The morning, Tuesday morning, the third day, the Rebbe finishes davening and the Rebbe davened in the previous Rebbe's room like these big tall candles and the Rebbe would spend a lot of time staring at the candles like as if the candles were telling him something. He would look at the candles. Tuesday morning, after davening, the Rebbe turned around and he said that the Gemara says that for three days you cry and for seven days you mourn. You eulogize. It's not our custom to do eulogy, said the Rebbe. So I'll tell stories. And the Rebbe proceeded to tell many stories about the previous Rebbe. 
these stories that the Rebbe told that Tuesday morning, and he continued telling stories every day during the week of Shiva, are published in the Kutusichas volume 2, which I suppose means that they're translated in English also someplace, um, in, in conjunction with Yudshvat, a whole bunch of stories that Rebbe told about the Friedrich and Rebbe. Here's what I found out, which is very interesting. There was a Jew whose name was Rabbi Yitzchok Dubov, who was a Rav in Manchester, a very honorable, very respectable man, very special chassid. And Rabbi Dubov was here for a wedding. His son got married that Thursday night, or Wednesday night, almost two days before the Histalkas. And so his father, Rabbi Yitzchok Dubov, was here. He was here by the, by the Histalkas, he was here by the Lavaya. And he went to Davin and the Friedrich Kebbe's and he took turns, he davened sometimes with Rashad's me, sometimes with the Rebbe's me. And he was observing them, he was trying to, he, you know, he had to pick a Rebbe. He was trying to choose a candidate, he was like, and he observed the Rebbe. The one thing that was very clear about the Rebbe was that the Rebbe had no shtick, there was no, Rebbe didn't play any games. Came into the shul, put on a thousand film, davened and left, quickly, everything quick. Um, but there were a few things that he saw about the Rebbe that were odd to him, that he felt that were strange, he, had no, he didn't understand why the Rebbe was doing it. So when the Rebbe started telling stories, he answered his questions. Each story was an answer to a different question. And he didn't tell the Rebbe his questions, and it freaked him out. The Rebbe was pushed at reading his thoughts. He would think something, and the Rebbe would tell a story and answer his question. It happened once, it happened twice, it happened three times. He left New York a week later, he went back to London, to England, to Manchester. He met the Anash, he met the Rebbe Sendanemtsev, and he told him, listen people, I, 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 know, I know who's next. <laughs> and he told him the story. He, I would think something and he would react to it. Like as if it was a perfect, like he had a conversation. He was wondering why the Rebbe, when he said Kaddish, put his hand across his forehead like this. So the Rebbe told the story that the Friedrich Rebbe said that when you say Kaddish Drabonan, you should uh, say a little Tanya. And, and the Rebbe used to run his hand across his forehead. And the Rebbe didn't clap his chest. He said that the Friedrich Rebbe said that uh, in a house where you don't, anytime you don't say Tachnon, you don't clap a uh, Shlachlon. And a bunch of things, but he thought something and the Rebbe would respond. Tuesday, the Rebbe already went to the Oyo. Two days. Two days after the Estakas, the Rebbe went to the Tzir. Now, I want you to know, though most people die, the expression is, you leave them alone. You don't visit the grave of a deceased for a year. Because it's a time of judgment, and they don't need the extra pressure from visitors. Because when we visit the Neshama, the Neshama feels it, and they're connecting to us. And they're trying to negotiate stuff up there. They, they can't afford to be spread so thin. So this is how they fit me. When someone dies, a relative especially, for the first 12 months, you don't visit the grave. Afterwards, you, you visit. And you can visit as frequently as you want. But because the Shama is already in Ghanadin. But for the first 12 months, the Rebbe went to the Fidik Rebbe two days later. I mean, there was, but the Rebbe, the, the Rebbe never looked at the Fidik Rebbe like a human being. There's no judgment. There's no heaven. There's no earth. The Rebbe always would say the Fidik Rebbe is not there. He's right here. The Rebbe went to the Oyo. He took along with him the various Lubavitch publications, the talks and tales for little children that the Rebbe gave out every month, and he stood by the Friedrich Rebbe's grave and read them cover to cover. Every publication that came out from Lubavitch, the Rebbe would take to the Friedrich Rebbe's tzian and read it just like the Friedrich Rebbe would look it over during his physical lifetime. He brought it to the Friedrich Rebbe and he read it to him. And um, the Rebbe made a habit of visiting the Friedrich Rebbe's tzian. Eventually he established a custom later on, not that year, but later on, of going whatever it was, once a month or twice a month, and then in the more recent times, the Rebbe started to go to the oil literally twice a week to the oil of the Friedrich Rebbe. And, um, and this started a whole new idea, going to the tea and going to the oil. At the end of Shiva, the Rebbe published a pamphlet, a Sicha, and he again went to the oil, 
And the Rebbe's message to Hasidim was clear. That tzaddikim, tzaddikim, holy men, righteous people, holy people do not abandon their, their flock. So certainly, the Rebbe is still the Rebbe, and he's still leading Hasidim, and he's still giving us blessings and connecting us to the Eibishter, and he's even giving us aid as counsel. Some of us may feel like we have a hard time getting the counsel, so the Rebbe said that the Rebbe will find ways of getting us the messages, but the Rebbe is still the Rebbe. And he would make reference to the story in the Tanakh, that after Eliyahu and Navi passed away, Eliyahu and Navi didn't pass away, he, he ascended upwards, so it says in the Tanakh, a letter came from Elijah, after he passed away, a letter came from Eliyahu, through his Talmud, through his successor, Elisha ben Shafat, so the Rebbe was saying, the Friedrich Rebbe is still the Rebbe. If you have a hard time communicating with him in person, he'll get you the message through different channels. But the idea of the Rebbe being a Rebbe was out of the question. Not out of the question. It wasn't even something that crossed the Rebbe's mind. The Rebbe is the Rebbe the Shver. The Friedrich Rebbe is the Rebbe. Case closed. End of story. Discussion over. Now, Chassidim came to the Rebbe and asked the Rebbe to be Rebbe in the very beginning. And the Rebbe told me, you guys are crazy. The Rebbe's reaction was like incredulous. What are you people, babies? You, did you forget how important this position is? You want me to be a Rebbe? Where, how do I come to this kind of a job? Um, but there was one thing interesting about the Rebbe. And that is, the Rebbe used to go to the oil and talk to the Fidic Rebbe, I'm, t- I'm talking to you, and come back with answers. Come back with clear, decisive you know, issues. People said to the Rebbe, they have problems. So I would say, okay, so go to the oil. So he said to the Rebbe, I went to the oil and I read my note. I didn't get an answer. They would say, oh, that's the problem. I'll take care of that. <laughs> and the next time the Rebbe would be at the oil, he would come back and tell you. The Rebbe communicated with the Friedrich Rebbe after the Histalkus, like before the Histalkus. And it was such a natural thing that to the Rebbe, it was a surprise that other people don't have those avenues of communication, you know. The Rebbe once told his brother-in-law, the Rashag, when, after the Rebbe was already Rebbe, that he should go to the oil. So the Rashag said, I go to the oil, nothing happens. He said, oh, if that's the case, then you think I shouldn't go. <laughs> What's the point? You're talking to a stone. But the Rebbe used to go to some Friedrich and Rebbe and talk to him, Mamesh, Kasher, Yedabel, Ishael, like a man talks to his fellow. And here he's saying he's not a Rebbe, he wants no part of being a Rebbe, but he'll be the messenger. You can't hear him, I'll tell you what he said. This was the Rebbe's compromise. I mean, I don't know if you can use the word compromise. This was the Rebbe's approach to this whole uh, situation, to this whole scenario, to this whole issue. And there are many, many stories. Yechen and Gordon asked the Rebbe a question. The Rebbe said, go to the Oyel. So he told the Rebbe, we're not blessed of a chassidim. We have a living Rebbe. There was a Yid, Shia Hecht, the father of the Hecht, Rabbi Yankov Hecht's father, a very chash of a Yid. Uh, he must have been a ball of fire. I mean, he had six lions uh, for children, so he must have been a super lion. So he came into the Rebbe and said to the Rebbe, I have a question. I have a bunch of questions. So the Rebbe said to him, Tu do as I do. Go upstairs to the Fidikab's apartment. Go into his office. Stand opposite his chair and read the letter. So he said to the Rebbe, Ich bin a Galician, a Yid. I'm a Galician Jew. And in Galicia, we knew a human being is a Rebbe and not a chair. <laughs> so the Rebbe had no choice, but the Rebbe had to answer it. And what happened now, what followed, was a year of pushing and pulling. The Rebbe started to Fabreng very often. Much more often than he Fabreng before. He did not start Fabreng, he began to edit his Fabreng edition. To look them over, to prepare them for print. And people said, look, this is a sign that you're becoming a Rebbe, you're editing your talks. He says, no, I would have done it before. My talks are tater. Anybody's interested enough in my talks 
to transcribe them and to have me look them over. I would have been very happy to look them over before too. I'm just transcribing the talks. But all the sikhs had one message. Connect yourself to the Fidik Rebbe, he's the Rebbe. And because there was a historical, so the Fidik Rebbe is rising, we have to ascend with him higher and higher so we shouldn't lose our connection. At the same time, the Rebbe started to do the, continue doing the Fidik Rebbe's work. The work of the Americas continued. And um, like I said, if people said that they don't understand the Fidik Rebbe's language, they would be very, very happy to help him out. Within weeks of the Fidik Rebbe's historical, the Rebbe wrote a letter to Rabbi Michal Lipsker, the Chen of Rocha. He was living in France at the time, and the Rebbe writes to him that I had discussed with the previous Rebbe in the weeks leading to the Yitzvat about the idea of opening up an outpost of Lubavitch in Durham, in, in southern Africa, in North Africa, in Morocco. And we discussed you, but there was no time, so I'm writing you a letter informing you that the Fidik Rebbe had selected you for this Shlichas. And the Rebbe sent him to Morocco. And this started what was probably the most successful Lubavitch endeavor in the last half century, although most of you don't even know it existed, because today it's basically dormant. After Israel became a state, anti-Semitism in Arab lands accelerated. But it didn't absolutely bust and become mamish murderous till after the Six-Day War. So in all of these countries, you had hundreds of thousands of Jews in Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, uh, Iran, Syria, Jordan, had hundreds of thousands of Jews, all the Sephardic Jews, millions of Jews, who were living on eggshells. They had ancient traditions, they'd been living in these places forever, they didn't want to leave, but the, 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 the simmering hatred to the Jews because of the establishment of the State of Israel, the displacement of the Arabs, was, was palpable. And eventually they all left. I mean, there's almost no Jews in this country. Morocco has less than 5,000 people. They had over half a million Jews in 1950. And the same can be true for Algeria and Tunisia and, and so forth. The Rebbe sent Shluchim to those countries in what turned out to be a brilliant preemptive move. Because Sardom don't have yeshivas. Sardom came to the West. They came to Canada, they came to France, they came to Israel, and they assimilated. Half a million Moroccan Jews almost completely would have lost their identity as Jews. If not for the fact that the Rebbe sent Shluchim to Morocco and established yeshivas in Morocco. And the, the, the structure of those yeshivas was that the Moroccans became the teachers. They taught, they had a base on Sefer Lemaitim. They established a whole network of schools and for the first time inside the countries there were yeshivas, there was organized learning and the shluchim were teaching teachers and they established institutions of learning for hundreds of thousands of people all over Morocco and in other places. When, they, when there was the exodus and they came to the West so they, they already had a, an Ashkenazi taste of yeshiva life and so forth and the reason is the shluchim in France and in Canada picked them up and continued the shlichas that had been started in Morocco and saved, for a perspective of Yiddishkeit, hundreds of thousands of neshamas, mamish. This was true in, 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 Can in France and in Canada and wherever countries where they decided and went, and also in Israel. It was an amazing, an amazing preemptive, it was a brilliant preemptive move. There are still shluchim in Morocco, there are still shluchim in Tunis, in Tunisia. There's no, I don't think there's shlich anymore in Algeria. There's certainly no shlich in Egypt. Um, but they were. And, um, but now there's no Jews. The Moroccan king is very protective of his Jews because of the tradition in the royal family that the kings 
gave over from father to son that as long as you'll be nice to the Jews, this, the reign will last. The, uh, the dynasty will continue. So the Moroccan king is always walking on eggshells because he has to be nice to the Jews and he has to officially hate Jews because he's an Arab. He's one of the members of the Arab League. And he gets into a lot of trouble for it. But he's really, he corresponded with the Rebbe, the king of Morocco. Beautiful correspondence, very warm. Um, and this all started, Mamish, weeks after the Fidika was in the Stalag, the Rebbe sent the Cholubska to Morocco. And it was followed up by several dozen young alike who traveled there to spread Yiddish guide. Young people, old people, amazing. The only thing they didn't have was money. They were living in conditions that were from like the 1600s, as opposed to the 1900s. But that's another story. At first, when people suggested to the Rebbe he become a Rebbe, he, he, he laughed. He said, ridiculous. The Rebbe got a letter from somebody in which he wrote to the Rebbe the idea of him becoming a Rebbe. So he turns to his secretary. The Rebbe turns to his secretary, Rebbe Chavakov, and says, You hear Amishagas, a craziness, this Meshuganeth, writes me a letter that I should be a Rebbe. Who, who could imagine? Mem Shnersen a Rebbe, he says his name, Shnersen a Rebbe. So Rebbe Chavakov says to the Rebbe, I, I, I agree with him. So the Rebbe says, So you're also out of your mind. It's <laughs> The Rebbe had a good friend, his name was Rabbi Baumgarten, Bello Baumgarten, who was later in Argentina. If any of you Argentinians, you've heard his name. He was a bunch of friend of the Rebbe's. Poshta Kutafreit. A special chosset. I know a Satmet Yid from the organization that I volunteered for, Vidari Sharon, who said to me, Der Yid is given at Tzadik. He knew him from, from uh, Argentina. He says he was at Tzadik, this Baumgarten. And he was Pasha Rebbe's buddy. They were chums. They loved each other. He was an extremely proactive doer and a happy guy. Perfect for the Rebbe. A doer and a happy, it's all you need. It's the Rebbe's combination. And he meets the Rebbe and the Rebbe says, Shalom Aleichem, and puts his hand out. And a Rebbe, you don't, hand, you don't shake a hand. You're Lubavitch and Chabad. In other circles, you don't shake a hand. And he stands there with his hands down. The Rebbe, it was a very uncomfortable moment. And the Rebbe says, Ah, those crazy Michiganists who got these, like, these delusions. This was the initial stage. At a certain point, it actually upset the Rebbe. The Rebbe said, If people don't stop it, he's going to disappear. He's going to run away and hide. You're never going to be able to find him. The day after Yudhfat, one day after the Fidika passed away, Hasidim all over the world gathered. Those who were able to make it to the Leviathan obviously came to the funeral. Those who could not gathered. One of the places where Hasidim gathered was in Israel. They gathered in, in Tel Aviv, I think it was called Nachas Ben Yamin. All the Lubavitcher Hasidim from all over Israel came there. Now understand, it's hard to understand, but try to understand. Most of these Jews were immigrants who had just moved to Israel a year before, two years before they become farmers. They were living very simple, primitive, impoverished lives. They had one dream. Zen Zachmet it's all they wanted, to see the Rebbe. These were the Russians, whose fathers and brothers were exterminated by Stalin like cockroaches. And they had survived. They came to Israel, the Friedrich Rebbe established Kachabad, which is also such foresight, such genius. It was an old, old man, the Friedrich Rebbe, at the time, but his, his mind was sharp as a razor. And they gathered in, in this shul for an askara. And there were a lot of Choshev and Abonim and Choshev Hasidim who spoke. People cried and fainted. It was a very, very emotional event. At that occasion, a Jew by the name of Avram Parish stands up. Avram Parish lived in Israel, but he had come to the United States 
1939 for purposes of Parnassa, to make a living for his family. And the war broke out. So he was stuck in America. Then the Rebbe arrived. And he didn't want to leave. The war ended. He stayed for another few years till the Rebbe pushed and kicked him out and said, him, go home. He had a wife and children who were getting married in his absence. One charge after another were getting married. He was in New York. He was a big chassid, a very big chassid. He loved the free like a like a son. And he worked hand in hand with the Rebbe. He knew the Rebbe well. And he and the Rebbe were friends. He stands up. One day after Yitzhak, he stands up and he says to the Hasidim, my brothers, he says, today is a very painful day, obviously, it's a very emotional time, but I want you all to know, Lubavitch has a Rebbe. And he proceeds to describe to them the Rebbe, the Ramash, who was the last known of the two son-in-laws. People were thinking that Shag would be the Rebbe. And he describes the Rebbe's personality. He says, I sat in the same room with this man for nine years. I never did a stitch of work. I would sit and stare at him. He says, I would sit and stare at him. He's a ganet, he says. He's a thief. He fools the world. He wants people to think he's a common man. But I'm telling you, there's nothing common about him. He's a, he's a holy, lofty, exalted man. He described the Rebbe as he perce- perceived the Rebbe. And this was the beginning. And there was all kinds of stuff going on in Israel and in Europe and so forth. Who's going to be the next Rebbe? In the beginning, there were two candidates, but within a short time, it became more and more apparent. There was only one. Problem was, that one candidate is refusing the job. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want to be Rebbe. This Avram Parij wrote a letter to the Rebbe after Yitzhak, in which he addresses the Rebbe as Kveid Kedushas Admur Shlita. He refers to the Rebbe as Rebbe. And I bet you that he put in Malcham Mashiach also. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a Meshachist. From 1943, he was a Meshachist. He probably wrote in the letter, The Rebbe gets the letter. And the Rebbe writes him back. I got your letter. And you refer to the Friedrich Rebbe with the title Shlita. As he writes him. You refer to the Friedrich Rebbe with the title Shlita. He says, it's a good idea because Taket, the Friedrich Rebbe, is still alive. And the Rebbe in New York, repeated by the Fabrengen publicly, he said, I got a letter from Ayyid, and he writes about the Friedrich Rebbe, Shlita. And it's, I agree with him. <laughs> he didn't write about the Friedrich Rebbe, Shlita. He wrote about the Rebbe, Shlita. The Rebbe said, that it's, it's correct to say about the Friedrich Rebbe, Shlita, because the Friedrich Rebbe is alive. And the Rebbe would speak about this again and again. But Avram Parish was only a first. One by one, Hasidim started to suggest to the Rebbe that maybe he should be a Rebbe, and he should take the position, and so forth. And uh, at first, the Rebbe couldn't believe people were even thinking in such terms. And later on, other things started to happen. At a certain point during the course of that year, the Rebbe called a meeting of Lubavitchers, and he asked that none of the Bacham should be there, because it's none of their business, but the Bacham were there anyway. <laughs> and he announced, he said like this, he said, listen, Merkis at that time, in 1950, had a budget, an annual budget of $50,000. $50,000 would probably be today, I would say, $5 million. It's a big budget, but in those days it was a lot of money. And the Rebbe said, the Friedrich Rebbe used to raise the money himself for this budget. And he said, the work of the Rebbe de Shver, the work of the Friedrich Rebbe will go on. If you'll help me raise the money, you are asking me, the Rebbe said, I should do more and more things. I'm willing. But I want you to know that above all else, my first priority is to do what I was given a mandate to do by the Rebbe de Shver, which is to develop the Merkaz and the Mechinach, the outreach branch of Lubavitch. 
If you'll help me, I'll have more time for other things. If you won't help me, I'll raise the money myself. But other things are going to suffer. <coughs> Rabbi Kazanovsky stood up, and he screamed and he shouted that we're going to help the Rebbe, the Rebbe's not going to have to worry. Yelkan writes, they all talked about how they can help the Rebbe, not one penny was raised by that meeting, not a nickel. Think the status quo remains. And so it went. One of the excuses that Rebbe would frequently give is that he had no Hedah. The previous Rebbe never told him that he should become a Rebbe. And if he was supposed to be a Rebbe, the previous Rebbe would have told him. And the Rebbe didn't make a move without the previous Rebbe. Now, I want you to understand the dynamics of this commentary. But what I'm about to tell you was conjecture. It's my interpretation of the facts, not the facts themselves. So keep this in mind. The Rebbe's mother knew the Rebbe was going to be a Rebbe. The Rebbe's mother knew. And she was living on presents in Crown Heights. How did the Rebbe's mother know it was going to be a Rebbe? Because her husband told her the Rebbe was going to be discussed as a Rebbe. And there's a story which I've told you probably more than once, right? I've told you the story many times. That before the Rebbe was engaged to the Rebbe, to the Fidik Rebbe's daughter, the Rebbe's mother, Rebbe's and Hannah, went specially to the Fidik Rebbe's house. I spent a few weeks in the house checking out the situation, you know, deciding if the food was kosher and so forth. They used to call it in those days, unto cooking the color, to examine the color. To, you know, today, a boy and a girl go out on a date. In those days, they actually did the logical thing. A sister would examine the color. What does a boy know about a girl? <laughs> Except that it's a girl. <laughs> and this is how it was. A sister or a mother would go to the house of the color and she would spend a few weeks, not a few days, a few weeks, after a few weeks in the Rebbe's house, in the Rebbe's house, the Rebbe and Chana went into the Friedrich Rebbe. And she says to the Friedrich Rebbe, my husband instructed me that before I leave, I must ask you, must go into you and ask you for a dowry. For money for a dowry. You have a chasm like this, you got to divvy up, you got to pay. So the Friedrich Rebbe said, I have no money. So she said to the Friedrich Rebbe, I never meant money. I meant Rabbeistra. I meant succession. The Rebbe wasn't even engaged. I want to promise that the Rebbe will succeed you. And the Fidik Rebbe agreed. So she said, I want to have it in writing. So the Fidik Rebbe said, I cannot give it to you in writing, but quote, Hasidim will understand themselves. The Fidik Rebbe said. How do I know this story? Because there was a Jew, his name was Chaim Lieberman, who was the previous Rebbe's secretary, who repeated the story shortly before he died. He was a little bit disenfranchised from the Rebbe because of the whole Svarsha Svarim. But there was a Jew who would visit him. And he told the story shortly before he died. He was in the house at the time. The story, it's a true story. He was in the home of the previous Rebbe at the time the story took place. And he repeated the story. It's a true story. And the Rebbe doesn't know he's supposed to be a Rebbe. I'm asking you. The Rebbe's father was so proud of the Rebbe. Wherever he went, he talked about him. And he used to tell people, my son is the previous Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's son-in-law, and the next Lubavitcher Rebbe. Hasidim didn't like that commentary at all. They didn't, it made him very nervous. But that's, so the Rebbe's mother knew full well that it was in the cards for the Rebbe to be a Rebbe. I suspect, strongly, that the Rebbe knew about it too. But the Rebbe didn't care. The Rebbe didn't care because his father's idea of him being a Rebbe was as a descendant of the Tzemach Tzedek. He was the fifth generation of Tzemach Tzedek. Tzemach Tzedek said that the fifth generation would come back. Shine. If the Rebbe was going to be a Rebbe, it wasn't going to be the Tzemach Tzedek. It was going to be his Rebbe. The Rebbe the Shver, the Friedrich Rebbe, He was the next link in the Friedrich Rebbe's chain, not in the Tzemach Tzedek's chain. 
So what, this is my interpretation of the effects. So when Hasidim would ask him, but being a Rebbe, he would say, I didn't, the Fidik Rebbe didn't tell me. Again, I suspect that he had other sources. The Rebbe knew he was a Rebbe. Are we kidding? But he, he wasn't told. The Rebbe kept on saying that he has no idea. He wasn't instructed. So the Hasidim went to the oil, unlike Bo'aymir of 1950, Tafshin Yud. And they uh, told the Fidik Rebbe that the Rebbe keeps on saying that he has no instructions. That same day, the Rebbe was by the Oyo. He never used that excuse again. He never used that. He had other excuses, but that excuse he never used. And, and so it went. As time went on, more and more people came to 770. People started to hear about the Rebbe, do a miracle from the Rebbe, do a Zeruch HaKadosh from the Rebbe. And above all else, the Rebbe was giving answers. He asked a question, he got an answer. The Rebbe went to the oil, he gave you an answer. But he's not a Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe is the Rebbe. Shvuas, the Rebbe Fabrengt, and Rabbi Simpson said to the Rebbe, maybe the Rebbe should say Hasidus. And the Rebbe's answer was, it doesn't have to be now, it could be on a different occasion also. Which was also a very positive sign. So many Hasidim were very nervous, very were concerned, because the Rebbe was saying officially he's not going to be a Rebbe. The previous Rebbe is still the Rebbe. He'll, he, you know, he doesn't mind bringing the messages to and from the Oyel, but the Rebbe is the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe the Shved. But there were telltale signs. Things were changing. In those days, people used to come and talk to the Rebbe. Even before the Fidrich had passed away, the Rebbe was an engaging man, an interesting man, and a very informed man, a very wise and knowledgeable person. People would come to the Rebbe to discuss issues. Some people came to discuss Taira, some people came to discuss problems, whether they were business or familial or social or religious. And the Rebbe would talk to everybody. He was a nice man. After the Fidrich had passed away, the volume of people became so accelerated that it became unbearable. The Rebbe sat in his office, the same office he has now. People would knock on the door. They wouldn't even wait for permission, and they would walk in. So the Rebbe's working on a project. Someone interrupts him. The Rebbe stops what he's doing, talks to that person. The person leaves. The Rebbe goes back. To, two minutes later, somebody comes knocking on the door. It's for the whole day like this. They couldn't get anything done. So at the end of the year, Rosh Hashanah time, the Rebbe made an announcement. That simply because he's about to work, he's making himself available to talk to people three nights a week. Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, at 8 o'clock. Anybody who wants can come talk, you can queue up in line, and I'll talk to you. This was the beginning of Yechidus, which would continue for 25 years. Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. And in the later years, the Rebbe would sit in Yechidus till 6, 7 in the morning, uh, talking to people. It started around the end of the year of Tafshin Yud, 1950. Before the Rebbe was already officially Rebbe. Not my mother, but Sichas, assured that every every Shabbos Brilliant, such creative ideas. We have some of it in the Rebbe's diary, the Rebbe's achievements that have been published. Yeah. He never said my modem, but he, he was very creative. The Rebbe never repeated the same thing twice. Always something new, something different. There was a Jew whose name was Rabbi Benjaminson, Rabbi Rachmiel Benjaminson. He was an old man, he was a Shlobanerov. He was living in Montreal. He came to New York. And he took a minion with, the, with him to the Oyel. My Zaydi Shusterman was a, a Shlobanerov. He was part of that minion. For Chayalo, they went to the Fidik Rebbe and they, taught, they left a note that the Fidik Rebbe should try to affect that the Rebbe should be Makabal the Messias. He went into the Rebbe and he said to the Rebbe this, he said, us old Chassidim will manage. But the younger, the younger, what's going to be with the youth, with the young people? And the Rebbe said to him, from the younger, I never said the youth to the youth, no. And that is a fact. When Bacham came into the Rebbe, almost from the very beginning, the Rebbe greeted them like Yechidus. 
there was a Jew who passed away that long ago. It was a Meshach Levit, a Meshach Kabbalakir. He came from France in the winter of Tavshin Yud Aleph, the end of 1950, and he walked into the Rebbe's room. He knocked on the door and he walked in to say hello. When he walks in, the Rebbe sees him and the Rebbe says, Ah, Dubizda, you're here? Shalom Aleichem. He puts his hand out and he keeps his hands down and he says to the Rebbe, I came to the Rebbe as a Rebbe. So he put on his hat, put on his gartel, and he changed seats. He moved to a different chair and the Rebbe was Makabalim Tichidis. In other words, the young people, the Rebbe already accepted to be their Rebbe from the beginning. It was just the elder Chassidim that he wouldn't um, accept. After the Fidik ever passed away. Yeah, I, 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 want, I forgot to mention this. I just want to mention this going backwards a little bit. The Rebbe used to wear a gray hat and a gray suit, as you can see from the photos. When the Fidik ever passed away, he started to wear a hat and a kapot, a black hat and a kapot. He looked more like a rabbi, you know what I'm saying? After the Shloshim were over, he went back to the suit, to the gray suit. He kept the black hat. And there are actually some pictures that were recently found of this. One of the chassidim said to the rabbi that it's unbecoming of a rabbi to wear a suit. And maybe now that the rabbi is a rabbi, you should put on a kapota. So the rabbi said to him, if I'm a rabbi, I can figure out myself what I need to do. And if I'm not a rabbi, what I do is none of your business. And the rabbi wore this gray suit with the black hat until you shvat the following year, until he became a rabbi officially. There's so much more to tell. I'm missing a lot, but okay, let's continue. The, the shayfa that year was blown by Rabbi Yifkin. Simchas Teir, if I'm not mistaken, Simchas Teir that year when they called up the Rebbe to the Teir, they called him up as Adinenu Mareinu Rabbeinu. He wasn't getting Rebbe, they called him Yamei Adinenu Mareinu Rabbeinu Marav Levi Yitzchak. And the Rebbe went. The Rebbe didn't show any outward signs of something being unusual, but when he was reading the Mafter, he was crying. It started, Simchas Teir, Tafshinah, you know, they started to call the Rebbe, Adinenu Mareinu Rabbeinu. That Fabreng in Simchas Teda, something happened, which was a very, very clear sign that, of, of a future Rabbistra. He announced that he wants that every Chosid in preparation for Yudshvat should deliver a million, ten Jews, ten Yidin, whom they've affected in thought, in speech, and in action, or in one of the three, to make an improvement in matters of Yudshvat. Every Chosid should deliver to the Rebbe a million, ten people whom they've advanced in Yiddishkeit through their influence. And the Rebbe said, everybody should prepare their meal for Yiddish Kislev, and he wants to have the lists. He's going to take it to the oil. And he said, you could do it, you'll work hard, you'll succeed, you'll be able to do it. Most Hasidim in those days, 1950, to affect a person's Yiddishkeit, believed it wasn't going to happen, they didn't even try. And some tried. The Rebbe Raskin's living me well, related how he went, he's going to a barber shop and harassed the guy, Harry, and push it bother him, he should start putting on film. He needed his minion, <laughs> there's ten people. And the rumor has it that the Rebbe had a minion of his own, the Rebbe had ten people who himself was also a Makarov. When Yudhis Kislev came, and many of the Hasidim had not delivered their minion, he said, okay, I'll give you an extension until Yud Shvat, everybody should see that by Yud Shvat, you should deliver a minion. That Yudhis Kislev, wait, before you get Yudhis Kislev, sometime during the winter, Chabad and Israel had a problem. <laughs> They were working over their, um, their, some kind of legal documents, some kind of official papers, and they needed to write in, you know, officers, president, vice president, treasurers, treasurers, secretaries, and so forth. 
in the previous file, the previous time they filed these papers, the previous Rebbe was obviously the president. So they asked the Rebbe whom they should put as president. And the Rebbe said they should put his name. Yutas Kislev that year, the Rebbe was not yet officially Rebbe. The Rebbe wrote a letter, Lechol Ho'admoyidim Shlita. It's the only time the Rebbe ever did it. To all the Rebbes, may you live and be well. Lechol Ho'admoyidim Shlita. To all the Rebbes all over the world. And the message, the letter said that all Chasidish Rebbes should celebrate Yutas Kislev. In Israeli newspapers, they published a copy of this letter. And it was headed, it was titled, Mikhtav Mikvei Kedushis Admur Shlita in Lubavitch. It's a letter from the Rebbe Shlita in Lubavitch. In other words, the Rebbe was not officially Rebbe, but the Rebbe allowed them to put this ad in the Israeli paper that the Rebbe, the Rebbe Shlita. Now, the story with this letter is the following The Belzerov, the great and holy Belzerov, Rabbi Allah Belzer, you can read about him in English. He was a very holy, 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 holy man. And the Rebbe met him once in Berlin. He was a very Hayda Kayid. He also got a letter from the Rebbe, Lecholad Ma'idim Shlit. So his secretary, who used to read for him because he was blind, comes into the Belzeruv, the Heilige Belzer. He says, Rebbe, Ayinge Naya Rebbe from America, Geshiknem Rebbe Mabriv. A young, new Rebbe from America. Strike one, strike two, strike three. Young, new America. Is sending the Rebbe a letter with instructions. So he should make, he's telling the Rebbe, the Belzerov, how to be a Rebbe in Mazurkut. And the Belzerov did not think it was funny at all. The Belzerov said to this secretary, his Anshal Anshal, whatever his name was, take it back, you're playing with fire. A different version I heard from the Tversky, Nachman Tversky, then he said, no, no, you're wrong. He's amongst the biggest Rebbes. And the Rebbe wasn't even a Rebbe yet. The Belzerov shook his hand in 1931, but these were the kinds of people who didn't need too much communication to get to know each other. Not a story. The Rebbe was giving everybody shalom with a towel, and, when the, and he had his head down. When the Rebbe came by, he picked up his head, looked at the Rebbe, took off the towel, and he shook his hand and put the towel back on. They didn't exchange a word, but they knew each other. <laughs> that, that's all these people needed. This was enough. Sadikim. In any case, in any case, as it got closer and closer to Yudshvat. For more and more places, more and more Hasidim are writing letters asking the Rebbe to become the Rebbe the Nasi Bisral, their Rebbe. And the letters started to arrive in New York. Chavdala Tevis, a delegation of Hasidim, brought into the Rebbe a whole stack of such letters. And they handed it to the presented it to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said in Yiddish, Vosidas, what is it? And then he took a look at it and he pushed it. He started to sob. The Rebbe started to cry. And he said, "Does heart mit me in guns and cane This has nothing to do with me." And the Rebbe standing, sitting there, crying, sobbing, and the Hasidim are standing. So finally, the Rebbe asked if they would leave the room. They're standing and crying. That same day, Lubavitcher Hasidim put an ad in the local paper, in the American, in the New York newspaper, they called the Morgan Journal, in which they announced that Lubavitcher Hasidim all over the world are accepting Kveikidushas and Murhara Mashlita as Rebbe. And there's going to be a big coronation of the Rebbe on Yudshvat. Some chokhamatic, some genius, ran into the Rebbe with his paper and said, Look, the Hasidim put in the paper that you're becoming a Rebbe. So the Rebbe called in his secretary, Rabbi Chadakov, and said to him, You must put in the paper a denial. It's not true. Chadakov called in the Shmuel of it, and he said, Listen, I'm the Rebbe's secretary. I have a job to do it. I'm going to do it. You have two hours. After that, I'm putting the ad in the paper. 
So they ran into the Rebbe. And they begged, and they cried, and they pleaded, and they tried every trick in the book. And the Rebbe saying, you had no right to do this. So finally, Rabbi Shmuel of Vitness, I said, the Rebbe, we didn't put in the paper that you agreed to be Rebbe. We put in the paper that we're making you into a Rebbe. You can't deny that, because it's not up to you, it's up to us. The denial was never printed. That same day, another very interesting event occurred. Very interesting event. There was a Jew named Rabbi Kazanovsky. Kazanovsky was a Hasidic Shayid who did a lot for the Rebbe. A lot for the previous Rebbe, a lot for the Rebbe. He was an activist. He was a successful activist. This Rabbi Kazanovsky had a dream. In his dream, he sees the Friedrich Rebbe's apartment upstairs in 770. And he sees the Friedrich Rebbe sitting at the head of the table. And all the Hasidim are sitting around. And everyone is depressed. Sad. And the Friedrich Rebbe turns to him in his dream and says to him, Shleimaran, why is everybody so sad? So he says to the Rebbe, because you abandoned us, you left us. So the Rebbe says, but I left you, my son-in-law, and he says the Rebbe's name. So Rebbe Kazanowski says, but he keeps on saying that we have to Makusha to you or that you're still the Rebbe. And he's not a Rebbe. So in his dream, he sees the Friedrich Rebbe turn to the Rebbe, to his left, and say these words. Matitzak Eloi. Why do you keep on screaming? People should be attached to me. Speak Hasidus to the Jewish people and they'll go to greet Mashiach. Kazanowski wakes up in the morning. The dream is as vivid as if it happened in real life. He runs to 770, goes into the Rebbe, tells the Rebbe the dream, the Rebbe hears him out. And the Rebbe says, you must have been fantasizing about it during the day because that dream isn't true. Had it been true, I would have also been there. I also would have felt it. And I don't remember such a dream, so it didn't happen. And so it went. The Shaydish Shvat, the Rebbe wrote a letter in which he instructed people how to behave on a yard site. This also was a telltale sign that it was only a matter of time for the Rebbe Makabal didn't see us. Finally, a couple of days before your Shvat, let's say Monday before your Shvat, there was an official ad in the Yiddish paper announcing that Wednesday is going to be the first act of the Fiyadik Rebbe. Hasidim are going to go to the Oyhel. And they can have a minion with their new rabbi, Kveid, Kedushas, Ademur, Ramash, Lida. And this ad was put in Takabai the Merkel. This was an official acceptance of the rabbi, of being the rabbi. Tuesday night was Yartite. They went upstairs to the Phoenix Rebbe's apartment. And they sat around. They sang Nagun, and nobody said much. The Rashag, the rabbi's competition, was, it was a very uncomfortable scenario. He wouldn't come downstairs to Fabreng until the following Tisha, until six months later. There was a minion from Maidiv, a second minion from Maidiv, whatever it was. And then the next morning, they never done a for the Yomid. And after Shachas, they got on buses, they went to the Oyal. The Fabrengen was called to 8.30 at night. And um, the is filled up with people. Hundreds of people came. How many people were by the Fabrengen at the Rebbe's coronation? About 300. But the 770 was packed, you know, the Asogis, you know, our average Shabbos today, you have a lot more than 300 people in 770. But by those days, it was like, wow, the room wasn't very big. It was full of people, and a lot of people came as chassidim, people came as well-wishers, and people, pushed came out of curiosity. One such man was Rabbi Metzger, Alter Metzger, was like, he was learning in Yeshiva University, Yeshiva Sisa Al-Khanun, and his friends were saying, you heard the, the, the chassidim making an ever, let's go check it out, see what happens, you know. So they went, Pashat, as, as, as observers, as, uh, as sightseers. 
He says, I came and I never left. He came that first Fabrenga and I didn't leave. Fabrenga was called for 8.30. The Rebbe showed up 20 after 9. The Rebbe was never late to anything. The Rebbe was always on time. For the Rebbe to have been late was very, very novel. Where was he? He was with his mother. The Rebbe spent several hours the afternoon with his mother and he was delayed by these conversations. What they discussed, nobody knows. But I can assure you, we all wish we knew. Because <laughs> they weren't talking about the weather, about wallpaper. They probably were discussing, and it's only a probably, the Rebbe's mother had all kinds of information from the Rebbe's father about this position. Because it was a tradition in the Rebbe's father's family that there would be a Rebbe coming from that line, from that chain, from that link, from that branch. And they came to Fabreng. But the Rebbe didn't beat around the bush. If he's a rabbi, he's a rabbi. And he started to talk like a rabbi talk. He said in the beginning of Fabrengen that in America you take a new job, you have to make a statement. He made an official statement. And he fabrengt. But no chasidus. No maimen. 20 to 11. Well over an hour into the Fabrengen. One of the elder chasidim, his name was Rabbi Sender Nemtsev, stood up on the table. An old chasid, Rabbi Sender Nemtsev, stood up on the table. And he said... The Sikhs are in good. The Sikhs are wonderful. But the Elam will see this. Nimtza Chayz or the Rebbe Zagan Chasidis. He said, The Sikhs are wonderful, but we want the Rebbe should say Chasidis. The Rebbe should be kind enough and say, I'm my man. So the Rebbe smiled and told him to get down to the table. The Rebbe came to the Fabrengen with the Bossi Lagani. Came with the, with the pamphlets to the Fabrengen. It was sitting on the table. The Rebbe's table closed like this here. And the Rebbe opened it. And he looked inside. And he said, In the Maimir, that the Friedrich Rebbe gave out for his histalkus. He begins, Yutzvat, he begins, Basi Lagani. And the Rebbe's looking inside. Now, girls, I, I'm not very good at drama, but the Rebbe said the statement. In the Maimah that the previous Rebbe gave out for his histalkus, Yutzvat, he begins, Basi Lagani, and then the Rebbe breathes. There's a pause. The pause lasts three seconds, it feels like a million years. There's a tape, there's an audio, you have to hear this. And then you hear, and there's another pause. But this second pause is very noisy because you hear the noise in the 770. People are getting up. It was such an exciting moment. The Rebbe started to say, and the Rebbe started saying the Maimon. At first, it was very, very hard for the Rebbe to say the Maimon. He kept on stopping and breathing and sighing. But as the Maimon progressed, he became more comfortable, the speech became more fluid. And at a certain point, the Rebbe stopped. And he asked they should sing two Nagunim. Because in the Maimah, Basil Lagani, the Rebbe mentioned each Rebbe by name five times. He said two titles from each Rebbe, two thoughts, one story from each Rebbe. A fourth time, he mentioned each name of the, each Rebbe's name. And lastly, he sang a Nigan of each Rebbe. And he wove into the fabric of the Maimah, the Nigans. He stopped twice in the middle of the Maimon. Each time they sang two Nagunim, one from each of the Rebbes. And then after they sang two more Nagunim, they had the Nagunim of all the Rebbes. As soon as they finished singing the Nagunim, this old man, Nemtaf, stops back up onto the table and he shouts. He says, Chsidim, we should thank the Abishta that the Abishta was good enough and he gave us a Rebbe and the Rebbe was Makabal to Messias. And he says loud and clear with his holy Shomer, and everybody screams out, Amen. And the Rebbe says to him, he should sit down and relax. And the Rebbe continued the Maimon. 
Then again, the Rebbe stopped. They sang two more Nagunim, and then the Rebbe continued. When the Maimah was finished, the Rebbe said, It's the Now listen to me, good Jews. And he basically said that nobody should think you've chosen the Rebbe and now you can retire. You've chosen the Rebbe and now you're going to go to work. And the Rebbe says, I was not selected to take over your responsibilities. I was selected to help you. Everybody has a job, everybody has a shlich, everybody has a mandate and a mission from the Rebbe, the Shreve, and the Free, the Rebbe. And nobody can do that for you. It's not going to help writing letters, saying l'chaim, singing the telling stories. This every person's got to do. We have our own piece of this world that we need to work on and this whole is nothing to talk about. The Rebbe said, I'll help you, but I can't do the work for you. Fabrengen finished around 12.30 that night. When the Rebbe left, old Jews with white beards were dancing like kids. The joy was unbelievable. And they reviewed the Maimed. Of course, you guys know about the Maimed. The Maimed talks about the seventh generation and bringing Mashiach. It's an unbelievable Maimed. A whole night. Wednesday night to Thursday, they reviewed the Maimed. A whole day Thursday, all day Thursday. When the Rebbe came to Shul Shabbos, they had reviewed the Maimed 20 or 30 times. Each time took an hour. And when the Rebbe arrived in 770, the Rebbe asked, how come they don't tell him good news? He heard. He said, how come I only hear the bad news, I don't hear the good news? Now, I just want to give you an idea, just give you a contrast. The next morning, the Rebbe came to 770, and he went into the Shofar Laning. They had these little thin paper sedudim, these thin little sedudim lach. <coughs> the Rebbe picked it up, he opened up this correct page of Kisleta, and he folded it back like this. The city was, was old, and he's holding it in his hand like this. So some Yid, obviously not a Lubavitcher, came into 770 for davening, he sees the Rebbe, the Rebbe's bringing a long kapata for the first time, you know, but he looks like 25 years old. Take a siddur, open it, and fold it back, and hold it like this. He says, Yinga man, nishta Young man, that's not how you hold a siddur. <laughs> the night before the Rebbe came at Rebbe, he's going to conquer the world, the next day someone tells him, would you behave like a mention show, you know. It gives you an idea of how small Lubavitch was. Which gives an idea how unbelievable visionary the Rebbe was. Well, the Rebbe had nothing to work with. No money, no people, no nothing. And he's going to change the world. He's going to bring Mashiach. There was a famous literature Godel who read the Maimir of the Rebbe and he said, he's created this Meshuggah and he convinced himself he's Mashiach. Lubavitch was two dozen people. It was nothing. And they were immigrants, survivors, without jobs, without professions, without countries. They're going to bring Mashiach. But that's the Rebbe. The Rebbe's vision, the Rebbe's faith. And of course, the Rebbe's skill. That same morning, he came into 770, he went into the office, and he told the secretaries, No! No! But that's not my blank. Got to make new stationery. Because all this time, the Rebbe was using the stationery of the Moistus, the Merkis and Machana. The Rebbe said, Rebbe, has a stationery. So he said, Okay, what does the Rebbe want on the stationery? So the Rebbe said, You prepare it, and I'll, uh, I'll tell you if I'm happy with it. So they took the Fidik Rebbe stationery, which said, Grand Y of Lubavitz, however it was spelled in those days, um, you know, Craig, Gustav, Moore, Schlita, and they just changed the name. And the Rebbe was very not happy with that idea, and he had a bunch of reasons why it's not appropriate. Firstly, he was never a Lubavitch, and secondly, he was not a Rebbe. The Rebbe station does not say Rebbe on it, it says just the Rebbe's name. It says Harav, Menachem, Schneerz, and that's it. And then the Rebbe didn't let them write even from Lubavitch. If I was never in Lubavitch, it's a lie. So they wrote Lubavitch. Dash. Lubavitch. Later on, the Rebbe let them put me Lubavitch. Shabbos, the Rebbe forbade again. He said another Maimir. And in this Maimir, he mentioned the Vashantav and the Mazisha Bagad. And he said that he only mentioned from the Alter Rebbe in the Basilagani because when he got married, the Friedrich Rebbe 
only mentioned, Friedrich said the earlier generations come to Achas and he only mentioned from the Alter Rebbe. So I mentioned only from the Alter Rebbe, but I thought about it to the Rebbe and I said, you know what, why not? I have a suspicion that the Rebbe was helped in this decision. The Rebbe made a second Maimir, and he said a Tere from Bashan Tavan Maggit. And starting the next year, Tafshin Yud Aleph, Tafshin Yud Beis, 1951 to 52, every Basel Lagani, I would mention the name of each Rebbe, beginning with the Bashamtiv, the Maggit, and then of course the Rebbe Abayim. And more and more recently, the Rebbe also started to mention the Maimarim, a teaching from his father's teachings, from Akutalev Yitzchakos of his father. This is the story of becoming a Rebbe. And finally, I'll finish with one last story. That year, Purim, the Fabrengen, the Rebbe took a lot of Mashke, the Hasidim took a lot of Mashke. And the Rebbe started to belittle himself, started to put himself down. And he said to the older Hasidim, he says, you, you guys are very strong characters. Because you saw the Rebbe Rashab, you saw the Fiyadik Rebbe. You should be crying now. The Rebbe said. He said that when the second base of Middash was built, the Gemara says that the young people danced and laughed and the old people cried. Because when they saw the second base of Middash go up and they saw how deficient it was compared to the first, even though they were building a house of God, they were crying. So the Rebbe said that It's a greatness on your part that you're not even crying. So one of the Altar Hasidim said to the Rebbe, Hasidim don't like this talk, we don't want to hear it, and so on. And the Rebbe kept on saying different things of this sort. Rabbi Mentlik, you remember Rabbi Mentlik? He sat, he stood to the Rebbe's right. He was a rigid Jew, he was stiff. Right? He was a big Hasid, he was not much a soldier in the Rebbe's. And the Rebbe keeps on saying, oh he's not a Rebbe, and all those other things. So he gets all his chutzpah. He didn't have a chutzpah that bone in his body. He was the finest man I'll ever meet. And he got all of his courage together. You know, he girdled himself. And he said, That's how he spoke. It's emphatically not that way. The Rebbe is a Rebbe. It says, Ein shall shall us from the mountain Rebbe. It's one chain directly from the altar Rebbe. And then he got up from his place. He walked over to the Rebbe with his cup. He said, I'm coming to take Lachayim from the altar Rebbe. He says to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe gave him. The Rebbe gave him. In any case, that's the story. This is Hashem Nemai said. The Rebbe says, this is the first part of the Fabregen. And now you have to talk about, so what does that mean to me and what do I got to do about it? But I'll leave that for Rabbi all time. He's very capable. Okay, okay.